The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in May 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we welcome Laura Benanti. Laura, welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you for having me. Briefly, you started your career at the Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey about a decade ago in 1998. Now you're starring on Broadway as Gypsy herself, as Louise in, in Gypsy, opposite Patti LuPone and Boyd Gaines. Yes. In between, you made your Broadway debut, also in 1998, in The Sound of Music. Other shows included Swing, Into the Woods, the revival, obviously, in 2002, the revival of Nine in 2003, and most recently, The Wedding Singer a couple years ago. Let's talk about Gypsy to start with. Yes, please. That is not only an iconic show, an iconic role, and an iconic director, Arthur Lawrence. Tell us about how you got involved, first of all, with the City Center version last July, and then uh, it obviously transferred to Broadway. Right. Well, I auditioned. You know, I I knew that it was going to be happening, and um, I actually had already um, signed on to do Eli Stone in Los Angeles, so I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to work it out, but I wanted to at least audition. I'd never met Arthur Lawrence, and I'd always wanted to do Gypsy. In fact, I wanted to audition for the Sam Mendes version, and he wouldn't see me Mm. because he saw Into the Woods and felt that I seemed from that too wise. And I was like, but I'm just acting. (laughs) You know, I'm just acting wise. I'm not wise, I promise. Um, So I auditioned. I had one audition. For him, for Arthur. For Lawrence. Arthur. And he gave me the greatest bit of advice. I had to sing Little Lamb. And I think, you know, as a as a 28-year-old woman, I thought, well, how am I going to bring the, the youth to this that, that needs to happen? Because she's supposed to be, I guess, a teenager at that point? Yeah. Or? I mean, really, she. I asked him, I said, how old is she? And he said, you don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to tell you. And I thought, wow, that's really smart. You know, I imagine somewhere around 14. Um, but he said, I did Little Lamb. And then... He came up to me and whispered to me, now remember, this has been this has been a horrible birthday, and they've all been horrible. And I thought, whoa. And I started to sing it, and I started to cry. And when I was done, he was like, yep, that's the way it should be. And then they called me and told me that I got the part. <laughs> was that intimidating auditioning for Arthur Lawrence? Yes, it was. Because we should tell our listeners, he's the guy that did the original Gypsy in 1959. This is, what, the third time he's done it on Broadway? Yes, and he wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he obviously has an investment in mm-hmm. it. Um, I was I was a little bit terrified, and I hadn't auditioned in a while either, for, for at least for theater. So I felt a little bit rusty, um, but I knew I, I was going to have pals going in. I had Jack Vertel there, who's always on my side, and Jay Bender, who cast me in my first show in, in The Sound of Music. So I knew they were rooting for me. And Jack is the artistic director at City Center. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you had done City Center work before. You were in Wonderful Town a I few had, years earlier. Yes, and he was also involved in Sound of Music and in Swing and in Time and Again, which I did um, at the Manhattan Theater Club. So. We're talking about first doing it at Encores. It was the Encores summer series. It was the new venture. Now, when we usually have guests from Encores, there's always that conversation about, oh, my gosh, we do it in 10 days. So the first question is, for for the summer show last year, how much time did you have to work on it? Three weeks. Okay, so more than the usual encore is perhaps yeah. a little less than a, than a usual Broadway rehearsal. Right, but I mean, a lot more was expected of us than the usual encores. We were totally off book and in costume, and it was a full blown production as opposed to kind of the staged reading that you get in a normal encores. Although that I've done that too, and it is way more than a staged reading. I mean, <laughs> if you mostly everybody is just holding the book, but they know what they're saying. It's amazing how much you can learn when you have to. And the the regular encores, which are three <laughs> times a year, run for only five days. The, yes. the summer one ran for about three weeks, three I weeks, guess. Yeah. Exactly. And it had a lot more scenery, a lot more costumes, a lot more oh, staging. Yes, to it. absolutely. So you did it for three weeks last summer, mm-hmm. and then when the decision was made to, to bring it to Broadway, first of all, did you go back into rehearsal? Was there a lot more work on it at that point? Yes. Well, I was actually in Los Angeles doing Eli Stone, and when the call came that we were moving to Broadway, I didn't know what to do. And Greg Berlanti and Mark Guggenheim, who are the writers and and executive producers and theater lovers, said, "Uh, we know what you have to do. You need to go do it. And so that's miraculous to, you know, have a group of people and especially a huge conglomerate like ABC and Disney to say, follow your dream. You do what you need to do. I mean, Hmm. that was truly remarkable. So, you know, I thank them for that. And then we went back into rehearsal for about four weeks. And for the first two weeks, we did nothing but sit around the table and work on the book. We didn't get up on our feet. 
And we really had the benefit of hindsight. We were able to do it, and we were able to see what worked and what didn't work, both for the audience and for us as as individual performers. So um, we got to really, I I feel like we cracked the surface at Encores, and we really got to drill Hmm. (laughs) to the core of the piece during the four weeks that we had. Well, a lot of people have said that the show seems to have deepened a great deal. I'm wondering if you could talk about where you see it as having changed or grown over the time. I mean, I think it's simply the benefit of time. You know, if you have, you know, a day to create a masterpiece versus two weeks to create a masterpiece, I guarantee you the two weeks will benefit you. Um, I think at least in this particular medium, maybe not in some others. Um, But I think what we were able to do was individually and as a unit delve deeper into the psychological understanding of these characters and what they want. Really, to me, this is a play about people yearning and searching and wanting for all different things that they essentially don't get in return. And that's the tragedy of it, for me at least. So I think we were able to figure out our own individual pathways and also how they intersect and when they intersect and how deeply they intersect, which we simply weren't able to really do except by um, instinct, really, with the three weeks that we had earlier. So um, I think that that is the majority of the work that we did. Well, I guess the City Center Encore Summer Series was somewhat analogous to a show uh, rehearsing out of town, doing out-of-town tryouts. That's what Arthur calls it. Right. When we were out of town at City Center. On on uh, 50, <laughs> 55th Street. <laughs> yes, exactly. So now that you've moved down to 44th Street, what are, what are the ma- most of the major cast members have all returned to the show. I think it's yes. only like two or three people that didn't only return. Only Nancy Opal. Nancy uh-huh. was, was on tour, and we miss her very much, but... Um, you know, we, we, we're very happy with the company that we have now so, as well. So what was the experience of working with Arthur Lawrence, other than the audition, working with him both on the city center one and now for the Broadway? I, to be honest, I was terrified of him because at, of, at city center. Because he, of his reputation? or Well, no, I hadn't heard his reputation. Um, he just, you know what it is? People ask me all the time if he's scary. Mm-hmm. And had you asked me the first week of City Center, I would have unabashedly said absolutely yes. But what it is, is he does not allow you to fall back on your bag of tricks. And I think every actor has a bag of tri- tricks. And I think particularly in the musical theater, you can fall back on a certain style or a certain way of being. And um, he just didn't let us get away with any of that. So... Without airing my bag of tricks, he he dumped it out on the floor and said, you don't get to play with these anymore. And that was scary for me. Um, I, I felt very intimidated by that process. But I began to understand him, and I think he began to understand how sensitive I am. You know, I think he looked at me and assumed that I perhaps had an ego that needed to be broken down. And the thing that he said to me ultimately was, what I didn't realize is that I actually needed to build you up. And... Um, I think in, when, in that moment, he and I truly became kindred spirits, and he's lovely. He's wonderful to me, and I, I love him. Did he have to, in effect, become Mama Rose to you? Did he have to take that kind of a overbearing a <laughs> stage mother-type role to, <laughs> That's a good to, question. To, to make you feel like you're really Louise? Um, I don't know if it was that... Um, if it was a psychodrama in that way. I, I think that he... This is his baby, and I think he wasn't going to allow any piece of it to not be right. And so he wasn't going... You know, a lot of times actors say, well, I needed room to fail. I needed to try this. I needed to try that. And he said, well, why am I going to let you try something if it's the wrong way to go? Why am I going to let you stretch a muscle if I'm asking you to do a completely different thing? And I, at first, was mad. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, you're absolutely right. Why am I going to stretch my arm if I have to do a split? You know, it's a totally different set of muscles. And I really learned that from him. And he really broke down my my walls of defense, which I think we all have. And I think particularly sensitive people have. And I am overly sensitive, absolutely. So for him to kind of break down my walls was painful at first. But um, I think it's it's I've grown as a person and as a performer, absolutely. And how about Patty Lupone and Boyd Gaines working with the two of them? Unbelievable. You know what I really learned from Patty was to turn everything into a positive. I mean, he would give her a direction that would have me under the table crying, sucking my thumb, and she would go, "Oh yes, Arthur. Oh, I see that. Absolutely." She would turn anything around that might be in any way hurtful, turn it into a positive. Never defensive. Never angry. Never. Um, 
she's just she's so open and it's all about the work and any you know people always ask me is she a diva no she's not a diva but it's all about the work in any moment or any piece or any person that is not fulfilling what the work should be you know she tries to fix it and she does and that's you know she's just a genius well, we're talking a lot about Arthur Lawrence, but musicals have many parents. Uh, there's also this guy named Sondheim. Oh, yes. I mean, this was one of his early shows. Where was Stephen Sondheim in, in any of this process? You know, he was not around nearly as much as Arthur because Arthur was the director. But when he would come by, you know, he always had pearls of wisdom. And, um, you know, I've loved working with him. I worked with him on Into the Woods and A Little Night Music at the L.A. Opera. Um I am utterly intimidated by him because I've loved his music since I was eight years old. I know that sounds ridiculous, but his was really the first music that moved me. And I remember going downstairs into my mother's music room and plunking out I Remember Sky on the piano and singing it, and I wept. And I look back and I go, gosh, what part of an eight-year-old girl understands I Remember Sky? But I did. I Somehow it tapped into me viscerally. And so from that, I've just always felt kind of a soulful connection to him and his music and so when i stand next to him i just really get geeked out i'm just a fan girl you know not not the kind of music most eight-year-old girls would listen to probably no i was not most eight-year-old girls i really wasn't (laughs) (laughs) presumably arthur lawrence and perhaps stephen sondheim might have had the chance to meet the real gypsy rose lee they did so and of course there's film of her, there's books that she wrote, some maybe ostensibly wrote. Um, what have you learned about the real Gypsy Rose Lee, or what have you chosen not to learn about her? Well, I, I have not watched any of her strips. Um, I didn't want to do um, a caricature of her. Uh, I read her book. I continue to read her book. I go back and I read it again and again. That helped me the most to tap into her loneliness. And I, you know, because Natalie Wood is such an icon. I never saw the movie, but I I think of her as such a pixie. And um, I thought, well, how on earth am I going to pull that off? And then I read her book, and her grandfather called her Plug because she was such a big girl. And that I related to. I mean, I was a, you know, I was a 5'4", 11-year-old. So that was intense for me to be, you know, as tall or if not taller than my teachers and a foot taller than all the other kids. So that, that awkwardness... I was able to tap into that, and I thought, ah, good. I don't have to be some flat-chested little little girl. I can be an awkward tomboy, which is what I was. So that helped me. Um, her intelligence, her incredible intelligence from a young age comes through in her book. Um, and what I learned from Arthur was her creativity with the truth. Um, he said that he never had a conversation with her when he never knew if she was lying or not. And I thought, well, she she had to. She had to create a world that, that was her own because the world that she was born into in reading her book was truly sad. Mm-hmm. And and her mother is actually a much darker person than is portrayed in, in the show. Um, Some so, have suggested her mother was actually mentally ill. Oh, yes. I, I absolutely think so. And that she was a murderer. <laughs> I didn't you know, know that. Yeah, they, you know, the in her book, it, it, she speaks about that her mother murdered her lover. Gypsy Rose Lee was a lesbian, as was Rose. Hmm. And hmm. Um, they used to have lesbian parties where they would invite people over. And um, she was, Rose was having an affair with one of Gypsy's girlfriends and ended up killing her. Whoa. Yeah, and that's one of the, um, the movies, actually, that uh, Gypsy wrote um, is, is based on, is based on that. Hmm. And... I can't remember. I meant to look it up. I don't remember if June Havoc is still with us. Dainty she June. She is. She's not well, but, no. but she's still with us. So, because, of course, there's the living continuity Absolutely. to the story. You know, I don't think June really relished how she was portrayed in, in either the book, Gypsy's book, or the play. Uh-huh. Um, but, her, you know, uh, Gypsy's son came to see the show, and he came backstage, and, you know, I... I at the risk of sounding like an egomaniac, he said some really, which I'm not, he, he said some really <laughs> lovely things to me. As um, well he should. <laughs> he, you know, at the, he said, when I was watching you in the, in the last scene, I started to cry because I thought, there's my mother. Hmm. And that, of course, made me weep. Um, and then he asked to see Leanne Larkin, who plays Dainty June, and he said, she brought so much humanity that my aunt had. 
you know, June really had a humanity that, that Leanne brought to it, and he went up and told her, and she cried too. Mm, wow. <laughs> Well, a little bit ago, you mentioned sneaking down to your mother's music room at yes. age eight. So, so let that seems the appropriate moment to talk about, you know, where your love of theater came from. Well, you know, my biological father is a performer, Martin Vidnovic, and um, my mother was a performer. And when he um, left, she had to basically stop performing in order to be a single parent. And she started teaching voice in the city and taught some greats. She taught Lauren Bacall for a while, mm. um, some really amazing people. And then she met um, her second husband, who became her second husband, who I call my dad, who raised me, Sal Benanti. Um, and then we moved out of the city and we moved to New Jersey, where he started a practice and she started um, her, you know, her voice teaching. And you know, it really took some years to build those up. So we moved, you know, out to a town that had a lot of money and we really didn't. So, um, I went to a school with kids who had tons of dough and, you know, watched a lot of TV and wore, you know, sparkly clothes. It was the eighties. So there was a lot of puffy paint (laughs) happening, you know, and I was this kind of awkward, highly emotional kid who was obsessed with, um, you know, songs from musicals (laughs) and, um, and had my, my mother's kind of sensitivity and love of the arts. And fortunately he was being raised by a man who taught me to harness that sensitivity toward others as well into empathy. Um, but it was an, uh, it was an amazing way to grow up, but at times it was odd. You know, I remember going to school and like in hand-me-downs, at one point, and um, a kid came up to me and said, I think that's my, my outfit. Mm. And I thought, oh, God, it probably is. And um, my mother, my mother is an amazing lady. Sorry. And I remember that. Oh, sorry. I don't know why I'm getting so emotional. It's so crazy. It's okay. She, um, I remember that for about 15 years, she didn't buy anything for herself. Mm. Only for, for me and my sister. When did you become your mother's pupil? Well, (laughs) she talks about when I was, I think she said I was 18 months old. I turned to her and said, Mama, will you give me a lesson? Hmm. And she thought, well, she didn't want to kill. She didn't want to say no, honey. She didn't want to kill that. So she said, you know, I kind of stood there, I guess, as much as you can stand. And, And she said, I had such a serious look on my face. And she did... She said my little brow was furrowed, and I, I did it with her, and um, I, and she would occasionally do that for me. And she also talks about I would fall asleep under her piano when she was teaching, and she said at one point she was teaching someone, and I was under the piano, and he did something, and I went no, and she went, <gasps> and he kind of ha 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 like sweetly laughed, and then he did it again, and I went no, and he was like well. Get and, the kid and, out of Yeah, here. exactly. And my mom, in her mind, is thinking, well, she's right. And then she gave him an adjustment, and he did it again. And I went, yes. <laughs> so, needless to say, I don't think I was welcome again. Um, but, you know, wh- my mother was really amazing. She didn't want... You know, I always wanted an agent. I think I was five years old, and I wanted an agent. I wanted to be on Broadway. I wanted to be Annie. Other girls wanted a pony. You wanted an I agent. I wanted to be Annie, and I wanted an agent. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was determined and no, 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 no. And at the time I was so angry and I realized now she was protecting me and protecting my creativity. Um, I spent countless hours in my room singing into a mirror along with anything I could, man, women, you know, anything. And, um, I think it really engendered a, a great sense of creativity in me as opposed to kind of knocking it out or making it slick. You know, it, it got to be in its pure form for so long. So when I was about 11, when she felt like my chords were formed enough that I could sustain real lessons, she started to coach me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people think it might be difficult, and perhaps at times it was, but my mother is such a remarkable woman that it was never anything but a joy. Well, it sounds like she is just the opposite of Rose. <laughs> she is. <laughs> she is. I, she's just... 
I love my mother so much that it's, you know, amazing to me. She's so kind and she's so empathetic. When I go home now, which I do as much as possible, um, I hear her still give lessons and the kids come in and these are kids who are going through their most awkward phase and they come in and I can see that they've maybe had a hard day at school and, you know, their skin's broken out and they're miserable and I hear my mother make them laugh and then I hear her help them sing beautifully and at the end they're laughing and they're confident and they're standing up straight and I just want to tell her you don't know what you've done for them you've touched them so much and sometimes I'm sad that my mother didn't get to fulfill her tremendous potential on the stage and I know that she sacrificed that for me and that's amazing which is kind of the same thing that Rose says in Gypsy is she sacrificed her life, her career for the daughters, but in a, in a very different way. In a very different way, but hers turns into a poison, mm-hmm. and my mother's turned into a salve. In almost every article about you, it's pointed out that your mother did not allow you to turn professional yes. too early, and yes. we, we touched on that, that briefly. So it, in many ways, here you're being trained, Yes, but no. So what's the exact story of not being allowed to go professional and and when were you turned loose? Well, you know what it was? The reason she taught me is she said, well, you're going to sing because you love it and you should. And so I want you to sing right. But I don't want you to do it eight shows a week with people judging you and wrangling you and you hearing curse words every other sentence and watching grown-ups live a grown-up life when you should be living a kid life. You know, she protected my emotional and mental safety, I think, as well as my creative safety. But, you know, I was allowed to do one community theater show a year and or, but when I turned 13, and or my high school musical when I got into high school. Only if my grades maintained. Um, and only if my behavior was good. <laughs> so, um, you know, I won the Paper Mill Playhouse Rising Star Award when I was 16. An acclaimed performance as, as Dolly Levi Up at age 16. Full-blown, I'm going to raise the roof at 16. I mean, when I look back, it was ludicrous. I, I'm almost embarrassed when I look back. But I also look at it and go, wow, I had some serious courage that would have been beaten out of me had I been a child actor. Um In my humble opinion. Um, So I won the Paper Mill Playhouse Rising Star Award. And through that, I was invited to sing at a concert that they had, a summer concert that Robert Johansson was directing. And then through that, they hired me to do um, Man of La Mancha. No, that's not true. Jane Eyre. I I should go back. I was I was the president of my class from eighth grade until junior year of high school. My senior year, my principal came to me and was like, look, you clearly have so much creative energy that is not being fulfilled in the school. They had really no arts program to speak of. I had a, a class of 89 ch- kids in my class. And I had done Spirit Week every year, and it, it got to the point where I was almost monstrous, where everything was an event. Everyone had to participate. Every, you know, if, if we just, everyone had to wear yellow, everyone had to wear yellow, and then we're canaries, and then we're singing canaries. Because you said because so. Because I said so. <laughs> and it got to the point where my the school was like, you need to clearly be let loose, <laughs> uh, because we're frightened of you at this point. And um, so they allowed me to take a half day. Um, I had taken enough AP courses and and fulfilled all all my requirements that I was allowed to leave at 1230. And I went into the city um, to Michael Howard Studios, I believe it was called, to study twice a week an acting class. And when I I went to the acting class, you had to audition. I was the youngest person they'd ever taken. And um, here I was with all these grownups. And it was a real learning experience. And... um, it, It was really, really interesting. And then the other... When I wasn't there, I was doing Jane Eyre, the play, not the musical, at Paper Mill. My mother said, okay, if everyone at your school seems to think that you should be let loose, I agree. You know, you're 17 years old, you're going to be going to college, and you can do this. And so I did that. Um, And then they hired me to do Man of La Mancha over the summer, and I did that. And um, I had gotten into NYU on a scholarship for musical theater, and so I was ready to do that. And then Susie Spidell at the Paper Mill Playhouse got a call from Jay Binder Casting saying, do you have any kids who might be right for um, The Sound of Music, for Liesl? And she said, aha, I do, Lara Benanti. So I went in, 
And they were like, how old are you? Mm. And I said, well, I'm 17. And they said, no, you're not. I said, no, I really am. I'm 17. And they said, well, we're sorry. We love you, but you're far too wise. You're, you're, you, you seem like you have too much going on <laughs> to play Liesl. And I was devastated. And I went home. And my mother got a phone call from Jay's assistant at the time who went on and on and on about how talented I was and would I come back to be in the ensemble. And we had a family meeting, and we decided that I would go back in, even though it was ensemble. I would continue. I would go to NYU, which I hadn't done yet, and I would, you know, let's see where this leads. I went in seven more times for the ensemble, and at the seventh audition, Susan Schulman and Jay Bender came up to me and said, would you please read for Maria? And Whoa. exactly, the face that you just made is the face that Whoa. I made, which was, what? I mean, here I am, this kind of curly-haired, Italian-looking girl. I, I never thought that I would be thought of for something that I identified so strongly with Julie Andrews. Rebe and I knew Rebecca Luker was doing the role, and she's so beautifully American-looking and, you know, so all-American and gorgeous and fair. And I read, and they told me, they said, well, you'll... If you will, you'll be understudying Mar Maria. And I just couldn't believe it. And I went home and actually, no, I went right outside where my mother was waiting. And I told her and she said, oh, my gosh. So we packed me up. I went to NYU for two weeks. I went to the dean and I said, listen, I have this job. What should I do? And he said, well, what's the job? And I told him. And he went, whoa. And he took out my file. <laughs> and he looked at my file. And he said, can I be totally honest with you? And I was like, I think so. And he said, in your audition, your, um, the, your auditioners said they had no idea what class to put you in. That you seemed like you maybe were too prepared. And I said, are you serious? And he was like, yeah. He said, I think what you should do is I think you should go do this because we're not going to be able to continue with your scholarship because there's people who want to be here full time. And I totally understood that. He said, why don't you go do it? If you love it, then you've saved $40,000 a year. <laughs> if you don't, why don't you come back for something else? We'd always love to have you. And I thought, okay. And I called my mom and I said, what do you think? And she said, well, what do you think? I said, I'd really like to do it. And she said, okay. Um... Which was miraculous. I did not expect that. And um, we thought, okay, after Sound of Music is over, I'll go back to school. And then Swing happened. Well, let's not well, even get yeah, there yeah. because I want to hear about <coughs> the first time you were told you're going on for Rebecca Luker. Well, she had a two-week vacation that had been, you know, she never missed. She was never sick. She has an unbelievable stamina. Um. They, you know, they said she's going on vacation for two weeks, and I thought, okay, here we go. My parents came to every single performance. Mm. They, I think they're still paying it off on their credit card. <laughs> um, it got to the point where the producers finally were like, okay, just don't pay today because we feel terrible. <laughs> um, but I, I'll never forget. You had, we had to run down a, a, like a hill, a platform, and do the. Julie Andrews twirl and put your hands over your head and I remember running down and barely feeling my legs and putting my hands over my head and seeing in the glow of the spotlight in my shadow that my arms were shaking uncontrollably and somehow I got through the song and I was dripping with sweat just flop sweat and everybody clapped like a lot and I, I thought oh my gosh this is what I've always wanted to do and I'm so glad I waited because Nothing could describe that feeling. Mm. No one could ever have told me what that would have felt like. And then I got to do it for two weeks. And then when Rebecca decided to move on to something else, I auditioned for Richard Chamberlain. And I got the part. And I got to do it. So you got to be Maria for real then? Yeah, yeah. with Richard Chamberlain. You were still like 17 or 18 at the time, I guess, right? I was 19 at 19. that point. You were yeah. all grown up. I was all... I was, And I felt very grown up at that point. I felt like, well, I'd been on Broadway at that point for a year. You know, understudying <clears throat> and um, living by myself in a studio apartment. And um, at 19, I, I, I took over the role. Playing opposite a gentleman who was considerably older yes, than you. Your, yes. your first romantic lead is Dr. Kildare. I know. <laughs> I know. It was, it was interesting. I didn't, I didn't bat an eyelash. It didn't seem strange to me. It really didn't. And um, 
I think because of that, I don't think it seemed too strange to anybody else. Nobody really seemed to remark on it in a negative way, hmm. just in that, you know, and, and in reality, Maria Rayner was a young woman. She was my age around that time. I think she was like 21 or 22 around the time that they met, and he was considerably older. So, you know, for, you know, in that time period, that wasn't so unusual. I guess it's not now either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <It's also laughs> Look at Hollywood. Also interesting <laughs> that when Mary Martin played the role in 1959, she was considerably older than Maria would have been. Yes, <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah. But she's Mary Martin. <laughs> that's, that's true. Well, you mentioned Swing, which came along the next year in 2000, yes. which was, if The Sound of Music is a quintessential Broadway show, Swing was anything but. Yeah. And it was a very exciting show. Basically, a lot of swing dancing, a lot of uh, blues songs, a lot of wonderful music yeah. in the show. And Anne Hampton Calloway was one of the creators of it. Tell us, tell yes. us how you got into that, because you weren't really known as a singer at this point. Yeah, that was a kind of a, a singer show. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It was the same producers, Richard Frankel and Tom Uh and Jack Vertel and Steve Baruch and these guys who, you know, met me when I was 17 and I think took a real interest in me. Uh And they've all said to me now, once I dropped out of college, they really felt like, okay, well, we have to keep her employed. (laughs) Um, Every actor should have producers. (laughs) I know. Oh, they are true gentlemen of the theater. I love them so much. They really are like my family and have been so for 10 years or more than that. Um... But I I auditioned. I auditioned for Jerry Zaks. He had me sing the song in so many different ways. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like singing with a hat on, singing with a pretzel in your mouth. I mean, it was just so many. What, what was the song? Um, he hit me with a hot note. I sang myself and then Cry Me a River. And um, I auditioned. I, it was like a three-hour work session or something. It felt like that. It was probably like 20 minutes, but it felt like three hours to my 19-year-old self. And um, and then I, I got it. And... Um, I went into it, and here's Anne Hampton Calloway, one of the greatest, you know, American songbook and jazz, jazz singers around, and Everett Bradley, who's, you know, incredible, and Michael Gruber, who also had a lot of experience with that repertoire, and here I was like, hello, everyone, you know, with my classical background, um, and Anne really was able to turn that into a positive for me, and she wrote, um, you know, two and four, and tagged it into Hit Me With a Hot Note, basically cataloging my journey from kind of tightly wound, buttoned up, operatic voiced Lara into this kind of my version of a jazz singer. So we were able to take it and, and really create um, a character. Crimea River, um, Lynn Taylor Corbett had already um, designed. And so I just kind of stepped into it. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And and Steve Armour, who is the trombone player, and I really had a dialogue. I really felt like we were speaking to each other, and he was speaking to me. Um, we, he worked really hard on that. He's such an incredible musician. Well, there was an unusual intimacy to that number, yes. which was quite striking. Yes, I look back now, and I realize I was 20 years old, and I go, well, where did that information come from? Because I clearly didn't have it in my in my life. Um but it was, you know, again, for me, it was a character. We had created a character, and and Jerry and Lynn really guided me toward this very sexy rendition of it. And um, I, I've, I've seen footage of it now, and I go, oh, my gosh. I certainly didn't feel that way on the inside. After Swing, uh, the next uh, big production that came along was <clears throat> Wonderful Town for Encores. Yes. So... At this stage, we've already talked about sort of the encores calendar and the mm-hmm. time that you take. Again, you're still very young, going into a show that's put together very fast. Oof. With Donna Murphy, who is no joke. I mean, her attention to detail is unbelievable. So, and actually, um, it, Swing and A Wonderful Town happened simultaneously. The producers were kind enough to give me, I believe it was two weeks off from Swing in order to do that production. Hmm. Um, again, Jack Fertel being one of our producers, it, um, you know, that was wonderful. Um, but yeah, that was really overwhelming for me. I had never done anything like that before. I had done so many readings at that point. I was like the yes girl. You want me to do a reading? Yes, I will do it. Um, so I had kind of learned how to perform with a book um, through through that but it was an intense process, and working with Kathleen Marshall was so wonderful. And Donna and I truly had a sisterly relationship. She was so kind to me and really looked after me. And um, I was able to learn from her and her work ethic and um, somehow got through it. It was such a wonderful experience. I loved doing that number um, with the in the jail 
where I got to do the Irish jig. Oh, Darling and Eileen. Darling Eileen. That was such a wonderful experience for me because, you know, I was, I've never had really been a dancer. So to get to dance that much and in such a short period of time was um, a challenge for me and one that I really relished. And we should say that you did play Eileen opposite Donna, who played Ruth, Ruth Sherwood. Yes, yeah. yes. So you're, you're godparents of the Vertel family. <laughs> yes. Um, you mentioned briefly earlier, time and again, which Jack, who most people know either as the artistic director of Encores right. or as uh, one of the creative producers at Joe Jamson, mm-hmm. a book musical by Jack Vertel. Yes. So tell us about Time and Again, which ultimately had been developed over a long period of yeah. time and ended up having a fairly short run, unfortunately, at MTC. Yeah, I felt like that was a shame. I feel like it really didn't get <clears throat> its due. And I think so much of that has to do with the fact that it really should have been a visual show. We really need, you know, it was in a very small space. And I feel like the beautiful music and the beautiful book didn't really get the flourish that it needed in order for it to be a true experience. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm still sad about the reception to that. That was some of the, the harsher things that I had read. That actually made me stop reading reviews. So maybe that was a blessing in a way. Um, I remember one woman said, as I looked out onto the stage, I realized those actors had mothers and I pitied them. Hmm. And I thought, well, who are you pitying, me or my mother? Because we're fine. (laughs) 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 But, um, you know, I I was sad about that. And particularly for Jack, who um, had been such a wonderful um, supporter to me. And and, um, I believe so much in him and I feel he's so talented. So that that was a little bit hard. That was my first taste of... um, of people not liking something. Yeah, because you'd had a pretty charmed run. I had had a very charmed run. So that was um, that was sad to me. So how, how did you deal with that then? Um, I don't know. I think I just was sad. And I think uh-huh. I allowed myself to be sad. And I continued to do the work. And, and when it was over, it was over. And I moved on. You went out for more readings? and Yeah, I did more readings. And, and at that point, I, I believe... Um, I went to do um, Shakespeare at Williamstown. I was completely amazed to see that as I went over your yeah. resume. How did you end up in Winter's Tale with a phenomenal cast? Kate yeah. Burton, Steve DeRosa, John Bedford Lloyd, Dylan Baker. Yeah. Um, I auditioned for Darko. I auditioned for him, and I had one audition, and he said, you're, that's, you're it. But you'd done, I mean, we've already talked about yeah. it. You had years and years and years of vocal training. I haven't heard Shakespeare's name mentioned anywhere in yeah. here before. Well, I had always continued to study acting. I continued to read plays and to work on myself because that's something that, you know, it wasn't just that I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be an actress. And I think Shakespeare is musical. I'd always um, been interested in it from a young age, actually. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I, I wanted to work at Williamstown. And, um, you know, it's got such an amazing pedigree. And so I, I auditioned, and I got it. <laughs> and then it was amazing. And what, well, what was the experience of going into Shakespeare for the first time? It was incredibly intimidating, particularly because it was, again, a very short period of time. I, um, I worked very hard to memorize it before I got there. I didn't want to be in any way hung up by the language. I wanted to be able to have um, a good shorthand knowledge of what I was talking about. I read a lot of books about it. Um, so that when Darko would speak to me, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And, you know, to have Kate Burton there as your mommy guiding you and holding your hand cannot be a bad thing. And again, you know, I've been so blessed with so many gracious people who have taken me under their wing, and, and she certainly was one of them. She and well, her husband. Well, we, we know that you listened to Sondheim's music when you were eight years old. Did you read a lot of Shakespeare when you were in school or, um, or not? I, I wouldn't say a lot, but, but my Fair share. I mean, I remember reading Cymbeline in high school and thinking, I want to play Imogen. You know, I want to do that. And I remember saying that to one of my girlfriends. And they went, what? Hmm. You know, and then we talked about Dave Matthews Band for a while, I think, after that. Because that was our (laughs) common ground to make up for it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, speaking of Sondheim, uh, you did listen to him as a kid. Yes. 2002, you were in a Sondheim show, Into the Woods, where you played Cinderella. Yes. Was that exciting, I I would imagine? Oh, it was thrilling. You know, again, I went in for it. And um, James Lapine, who I'd actually done um, a a reading with him, uh, he's, you know, he's such a smart man. He said to me, Coming when you're you're coming back from the ball and you've had a bit too much to drink, so I got to play my whole scene as if I was drunk, and it was really funny and really fun. And we ended up keeping it um, in the production when I 
when I found out I had gotten the role. But it's funny because they cast me early on and then they didn't have anybody else. So it was just kind of like into my woods. <laughs> there, was, there was nothing going on. It was really interesting. And it's funny. That's such um, I have such an interesting relationship with that experience because on one hand it was one of the most positive cr- creative experiences that I had and then one of the most um, upsetting for me because I um, I actually ended up you know severing um, and herniating discs into my spinal cord doing the pratfalls and the saddest part about it to me is that I was misdiagnosed for so long you know, I went to a doctor who said, yes, you've herniated three discs into your... You've herniated three discs, but they're herniated to the side. So just do physical therapy and you'll be okay. So I tried to do that and... Um, and you're still performing? At this point, I was still performing, but I, I ended up missing so many performances because, you know, my, my doctor who actually properly diagnosed me explained to me later that when you have something as severe as a neurological condition, you know, what I had was three discs pressing onto my spine so that means your body is not sending the rest of your body the right signals you know your spinal column is basically the conduit for your entire system so i was getting tremendous respiratory infections horrific respiratory infections um i couldn't feel my hands or my arms my dresser backstage would have ice packs on me and these crazy like plaster boards they would put on my back because i felt like i couldn't breathe at one point, I fainted, and they had to um, call an ambulance, and mm. I was in the hospital um, for a day, and then I couldn't get my blood pressure back up, you know, and I look back now, and I want to go, I'm such an idiot. Why didn't I get a second opinion? Why didn't I go, I wonder if this has to do with my stupid neck? So I continued to miss, which was devastating for me, and was really hurtful the way it was handled. Um, uh I was going to ask, how do you mean handle... I mean, I read one thing which said they literally weren't telling people that you were hurt. Yeah, at one point, they were contacted by the Post, and their response was, we think Laura's very talented, but we wish she'd show up more for performances. So that was devastating for a 22-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it was your neck that was injured. Yeah. Was it a a broken neck? Is that what it was? Well, you know, what it was 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 you know a herniation. I Uh had my discs. What ended up happening was, you know, just to to kind of finish the the saga that that is my neck story. Um, So I ended up, it ended up being so bad that um, I basically gained about 15 pounds of of protective water weight. Mm -hmm. I don't, um, and that was my body. Thank God, protecting myself. And then my doctor said, you can't, you know, the same doctor who misdiagnosed me said, you're not getting better, you're getting worse, and you need to not do the show anymore. So I left the show around the same time that my Uncle Bob died. Um, So it was kind of a tragic time for me. And um, to hear from some of my friends in the cast that other people were saying that I was faking my injury was, Mm. was devastating to me. Um, it was truly devastating to me. And the first experience I'd really had with that kind of meanness. Mm-hmm. And um, so at that point, I'd already been cast in nine. So I thought, okay, Laura, get it together. You're going to go to physical therapy. You're going to be on all the medication that they give you, and you're going to be okay. So I started rehearsals. I think I had done about a week of rehearsals of nine. This is about nine months later after all of this. I was at home at my parents' house, and I woke up, and I couldn't move. I couldn't feel my body at all. And um, so we finally went to David Frazier, who is an angel and saved my life. And he looked at the same exact MRI that the original doctor looked at and said, these discs are not herniated to the side. Look, he showed me. I could see that. I mean, to this day, that infuriates me. But he said, they're pressing on your spine and you are lucky that you can walk right now. And we are doing surgery tomorrow. And I thought, oh, gosh, is he being alarmist? What should I do? Should I get a second opinion? My parents came in, and my dad turned to him and said, if this was your daughter, what would you do? And he said, I would, have, I would give her the surgery immediately. And so we did. And the scary part of it was that they had to go in through the front of my throat, which meant moving my vocal cords to the side for three hours. Wow. So I had to sign a piece of paper basically saying, if my vocal cords were in any way injured, 
I was not to sue this doctor because he was essentially enabling me to walk again. And afterwards, he said, your neck was even worse than I thought. He said, your discs had pierced through your tendons and were caught in your tendons. So every time you turned your head, you were essentially severing your spinal cord. Mm -hmm. He said, I don't know if you pray or who you pray to, but you should thank them because there's no reason why you should be able to walk. And at this point, do you have any lingering problems? I do. I have something called myelopathy. I have 35% loss of dexterity and feeling and strength in my arms, hands, and face. Mm -hmm. So there are times where when I wake up, I have to wake up my jaw. I have to wake up my neck. As I'm sitting here, I'm I'm uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to do tremendous amounts of stretching. I still do physical therapy twice a week. There are times where I do have to go on medication if I get particularly swollen. Rainy days like today are particularly hard. We'll see, we're making you sit. We brought you out in the rain. Oh. But let's go to happier things. No, no, no. You it's obviously good. came through the surgery because we saw you in none. Yes, and can I just say that Todd Hames and The Roundabout and Antonio Banderas and Cheetah Rivera and Mary Stuart Masterson were my angels during that time. They've, you know, I basically had to say, I have to leave rehearsals right now and I will not be back until we open. And they said, okay. Antonio sent me four baskets. He said, Laura, I, I was so worried about you. I just kept sending you baskets. <laughs> and they were piling up. Baskets of what? Baskets of videos and teddy bears and fruit. Oh. And I mean, it was just miraculous. And, and what a difference in how it was handled for me to go from a position where I felt truly like a pariah to a situation where I was being so loved and cared for and they showed me so much you know I mean for for a producer to look at you and say come back when you can are you kidding me their show hadn't even opened we hadn't even previewed I was I got surgery and three weeks later I was back in the first preview and I mean I don't know how I did that I guess youth but um you know, that was truly miraculous. And it was it ended up being an incredible experience for me. Unfortunately, you know, again, I had to miss, a f- you know, shows here and there because I had just gotten major surgery. And there were days where I, I just couldn't move my neck. And they you even know. costumed you to cover the surgery? They did. They did. They gave me a choker because I had a big scar in the front of my throat, which now is pretty much healed. You can see can, it a tiny bit. It. can hardly see yeah, it. Thank yeah, thank you. He did a wonderful job. He's an yeah. amazing surgeon. Since then, Norbert Leo Butts has had surgery from from uh, David. He called me and um, and talked to me about it, and I said, look, if he tells you you need it, you need it. Hmm. Um, so, but that experience was amazing. And again, you know, Cheetah Rivera, I've been so blessed with all of these women. You know, Donna Murphy, Kate Burton, Patty Lapone, Cheetah Rivera, who in no way have looked at me like, all right, kid. It's always been with this motherly Love. I've been so blessed in that way, and that was such a remarkable experience for me. It's a wonderful testament to both the doctor and all the people that you've been, been naming that, that yes. you're working with, but also to yourself to be able to come back literally three weeks out and then go on stage, which is not easy for anybody at any point, no. even in good health, yes. and to be able to do that. It was incredible. I remember at one point, you know, the stage filled with water, and I had to walk across plastic water-filled chairs in a corset and a big hoop skirt in heels. And I remember thinking, and my surgeon was in the audience, and I remember <laughs> thinking, what on earth am I doing? <laughs> and it's funny, he came to the first preview, and he said to me, I... I am so grateful I didn't know what you sounded like because I would have been too nervous to do this for you. Did it affect your voice in any way, um, do you think? You know, not till years later. Not until, actually, um, not until really the wedding singer. You know, I, I, I felt irritation. It certainly was difficult for me. And the times that I missed in nine um, was was either because I... I had just had the surgery and I couldn't really move my neck or from incredible irritation on my cords. Um, they were very scruffy where I had a kind of a pure sound before it was almost a more mature sound. Mm. Um, but it didn't come from, from natural age, you know? So after nine, I took a bit of time off because I was concerned. Um, I was concerned about that. So, well, your voice is your career basically. Yes. So do you do anything special now, <laughs> vocal exercise or anything that you have to take? I do a lot of vocal rest. Uh-huh. I really do. Really? Yeah. Um, I try to not speak during the day except to lovely people such as yourself. <laughs> um, and I really try, um, I, I steam, I gargle, I take impeccable care of myself. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't eat dairy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's a very boring life, but one that I've always wanted to live. So, um, but I, I just take impeccable care of myself, but I do have to be careful. 
So after this incredible journey through all of these characters, all of these classic shows in, in so many cases, um, what was it like to land back in New Jersey in the 1980s with Wedding Singer? You know what? It was surreal. I had taken a bit of time. You know, I had, did, I, I had done a, um, a role. Uh, you know, I did a show called Starve for FX, and I did a movie with Antonio and another movie with B.D. Wong. And so I'd taken a little bit of time for myself. And... Um, you know, it was an interesting experience for me. It ultimately wasn't as creatively satisfying as I would have liked. Um, and it was kind of, a, again, a difficult period um, in my life. I was getting a divorce while I was wearing two mm. wedding dresses a night. So that was a little mm. bit difficult. Um, but it was a wonderful group of people. Um, I think that the, the, you know, Chad and um, Matt are so talented and I think the show was so funny and didn't purport itself to be anything but that. You know, it's not like we were saying, come see the wedding singer, we're going to change your life. It was like, come see the wedding singer, you're going to laugh. And for me, what I wanted to show is that I didn't always have to have a crown on my head. I didn't always have to be a muse or some far away person that I, I'm from Jersey. I am the girl next door. And, um, unfortunately, I don't think we were able to focus as much on the love story as, as perhaps was necessary to, to be a truly satisfying show. But I think that it it really brought a lot of people a lot of joy. So I, I was I was happy to be a part of it, you know. Were you able to draw upon your New Jersey upbringing for the character? Well, I always joke that I was playing my cousin Denise, <laughs> you know, who is just. You know what I love about that show? The show is about real people, and real people don't get musicals necessarily written about them. It's extraordinary people who get musicals written about them. And this is about just regular folk who I grew up with and who, in their own way, are so special and deserve to be celebrated. So I felt like it was the celebration of, of the every man or every woman. Well, now you're starring on Broadway in, in Gypsy. It keeps you pretty busy. Mm -hmm. What do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? Um, not eat cheese, apparently. I don't eat cheese. <laughs> That's not very fun. <laughs> Soy cheese is not very fun. Um, what do I do for fun? I hang out with my husband. I um, I try to hang out with my family as much as possible. I watch John Adams. <laughs> <laughs> I watch a lot of Discovery Channel. I'm, I'm not as... Um, as exciting as maybe I should be. I can't go out after the show. I can't talk. You know, I have to go home and chill. Um, so that's kind of what I do for fun. I know that sounds kind of losery, but it's the life I've chosen, and I'm happy. I find so many people say that the life that they lead when they're in a show is not all that exciting because you have to really protect yourself and, mm -hmm. and stay in good health and good shape to do the show. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know people who go out and party, and I literally go, how on earth do you do it? Good for you. But I would be on the floor. I couldn't. I'm not a big partier anyway, so. Well, you are at the St. James Theater, eight performances a week now as Louise, as Gypsy, in Gypsy. Yes. And Laura, thanks so much for being with us Thank today you. on Downstate Center. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a, a pleasure. Thank thanks. you. Thanks, Laura. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstate Center. That is a wrap and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.